One of the formative experiences as a young Christian was, um, for me, was shortly after I had been um, baptized and um, I was... um, I was in junior high, and I, um, I was with friends, and we were attending a uh, band competition. I believe it was in Gravit, and it was on a, um, it was on a Saturday. And so you'd go to these all-day things, and your group would do their performance uh, out on the field, and uh, this would have been in the fall, uh, which would be about the time uh, when I was baptized in August, and uh, this would have been later on. So I, there I was with friends, and, and, and all of these schools would show up, and you know, there's not much to do in Gravit, so you wander around the football field after you've done your part, and you just look for something to pass the time until all the awards are given. Well, I guess some local evangelists decided that that would be a, a good time to um, uh, to you know, go out and preach the gospel to all of these, um, you know, bored individuals at this event who had nothing better to do. And a crowd had formed around this, uh, this young fella. He, um, he's probably in his 20s or 30s, something like that. At the, you know, and I just remember this um, um, you know, smallish sort of fellow who, um, you know, he, he's preaching the gospel with a lot of fire and with a lot of energy and uh, there was a lot of conviction in his voice and, and I don't really remember all the words that he was saying but I saw this uh, you know this fellow preaching in a way that I'd never seen before he wasn't wearing a suit he wasn't wearing a tie he didn't have on the the vestments of our non-tradition or anything like that and he's just out there in his ordinary street clothes but he's passionate about his message and he's telling people that they need to be saved and he's telling people they need to be saved and and he's preaching Jesus and, um, and of course, my friends and I were you know, spying this whole event because we were bored. And we thought, well, now this is interesting, isn't it? Look, here's this fellow out here in the street. And he's just, uh, hey, why, he's just out here uh, talking and preaching. This was kind of uh, interesting. We weren't particularly interested in the content of his message. And we were more interested in the spectacle of this young fellow who's just out there uh, bringing church outside the walls. And we thought, now, now what a crazy thing that is. Look at that. Um, and, and then, as we're moving in to spy this and eye this, his eyes catch mine. And with a stare, he says, have you been saved? And my immediate response was, well, I hope so. He said, you'd better do more than hope so. You'd better know so. Failed the test. I didn't even know it was coming. And that moment stuck with me forever after because I didn't know. I thought, well, now wait. Wait a second. I just got baptized. How dare he tell me that I'm wrong? And the reason I said, well, I hope so, because I didn't want to be presumptive. I didn't want to be arrogant. I didn't want to come off as, you know, some you know, puffed up individual to say, you better believe it, you know, I'm saved, just, I didn't want, and I didn't, I certainly didn't want to, because I thought that might mean that I had to go up there next to him and start preaching like him and doing what he was doing, so I kind of wanted out of the whole situation, 
But I've been thinking about that uh, over the years, and um, it's guided me in my study of Scripture. I said all of that, and I also realized that to give such an answer is a poor answer. Uh, you know, I, I can forgive myself for being young and for not wanting to be presumptive and arrogant, and that's all good, and, and maybe you would feel the same way, and that's all good. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to feel. I can also tell you this now. I will say this. That, you know, that, 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 that guy may have been evangelistic, and I have no idea who he is, never met him, never saw him again. Uh, but that really is poor technique to pull someone out of the crowd and say, you know, have you been saved? I mean, yeah, that could have actually turned me off to the gospel, that kind of technique. So I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't recommend that. There's no gain, there's no benefit in that. And I've met some street preachers later who actually did do that. But those are other stories for another time. And um, I rather enjoy talking to those fellows. But the, um, this... this this made me think, you know, why, why did I have a lack of confidence? What was it? And I think it's because I, I was just beginning to understand, or I didn't yet understand, grace. And grace is still a tricky concept. And we just sang about it, the one who saved me by his grace. And yet, when you've grown up hearing the question, what must I do to be saved, Grace is not an answer to that question, but grace allows that question to be asked. And grace allows us to respond, but grace is not the answer to that question. It precedes the question. It doesn't come afterwards. I want to take you to a verse real quickly. Um, I want you to look with me at Titus chapter 3. It's very close to the scripture that Robert Benjamin read this morning. In the communion, Paul's telling the church on the island of Crete, he's actually he's writing to Titus to encourage him to teach this to those Christians. Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now, this is a trustworthy saying. There's a few words in there that redeem my original answer, I hope so. It's that last line, I want to stress the, and I want you to stress the hope of eternal life. Looking back and wishing to go back, some days I say, you know, it would have been a right answer to say, oh, I have hope. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong to have hope. Here Paul says he wants them to stress hope. And there's a confidence that he mentions in verse 8 when he says this is a trustworthy saying. A trustworthy saying is a saying that you can depend on. It's a statement that you can depend on. And you can depend on God's promise, willingness, and intent to save. 
Paul never says, we are saved. Now, he'll use that language in, in 1 Corinthians, but that's another lesson. He says, actually, we're, we're in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, we who are being saved. But here, he uses the, expre- the statement, he saved us. What I know about language now is that you can, ha- you can, you can have a verb that's... Um, Active or a verb that's passive. An active verb is I do something. I uh, throw the ball. I throw. Or you can say the ball was thrown. Now the subject there is the ball. That's the focus. The ball. The ball was thrown. By who? By me? By Nolan Ryan? By, you know, some, some kid? I don't know. It doesn't matter. We're focusing on the ball. Here, Paul wants to focus on what God did. The response is up to us. That question, are you saved, puts the emphasis on us. And that's exactly what the street preacher intended. Now, if the question that day had been, has God saved you? I might have come up with a different answer. And honestly, that's the question we need to be asking ourselves and asking others. Do you know that God has saved you? Do you know that God wants to save I mean, Do you know that he is, I, I'm not talking about some of us are saved and some of us are not in some sort of predestinational way. I don't even know if that's a word. but you know, the, 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 the idea is, is do you have knowledge of God's ability and his promise and his relationship with you so that you are saved and you know that? That's what we need to know. What must I know? What must I do to be saved? You need First, you need to know about God and his grace. That's the start. And here, I want to tell you three things about that grace. Because what I've seen over the years in my lifetime is a, a tendency to overcorrect one way or the other. See, grace scares uh, some folks because we're afraid that if you start handing out grace, then that's, like, that's sort of like spiritual welfare or something like that. You know, and then no one's going to work for it anymore. And everybody's going to get a bunch of spiritual grace, and it doesn't matter what you do. Well, uh, you know, God's going to save me. I can do whatever I want. That's one overcorrection. The other overcorrection is to say that, um, you know, that um, uh, anything, anything that smacks of a religious ritual is works righteousness. So you don't want to go anywhere near the baptismal waters because that looks like you're trying to earn your salvation. Okay, both of those are overcorrections that we don't have time to deconstruct, but neither of those are really dealing with grace and what's really operating with grace. In the first century, in the time of the Bible, when the Bible was being written, no one was worried about those tendencies and had to overcorrect. Grace was good news. It was something new. And and the folks were, were, were hearing this and and coming aware of it. And so Paul is telling Titus, you, you need to make more and more people aware of this. You need to let them know about grace. Don't hide it. Don't reserve it. Don't put it up in a, in a lockbox in a, you know, in a, in a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a thief-proof uh, security glass or anything like that. You need to tell more people about it. And not because it, you know, packs the pews or, or, it's just what we're supposed to do. You need to tell more people about it because that's going to change lives. Now listen to what 
Paul says in, um, go back up to uh, chapter 2 of Titus, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. We're talking about being saved. Well, that salvation has been offered to all. So the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager, eager to do what is good. And if you've ever wondered where the second part of that mission statement comes from, it's right here. These then, Paul says to Titus, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. First, thing I want to share with you is grace teaches us. Grace is a teacher. It's not, it's, not a, it's not an idle pass that we get that just says, ah, you know, we're just going to forget about this. We're going to sweep it under the carpet. Grace is a teacher. Grace comes to us as an offer, and it has, it has great weight to it. And we talked this morning, I talked about the, um, uh, the blue chips that we hand out as an encouragement and all the chips we hand out as an encouragement to celebrate recovery. They have a little saying about grace on them from 1 Corinthians 12. Or, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul talks about his own experience in grace. And it's not just for his salvation, but for it's, it's for his ongoing work and life and practice. And it gets very real. I want to back up to um, uh, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6. Even if I should choose to boast, I would, not, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is, that in, than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul is putting his confidence and his trust in the offer of salvation that comes from God, a merciful God, the same merciful God that he's talking about, uh, writing about in Titus and wants Titus to preach. So the second thing I want to say about grace for us tonight is that grace is enough. You don't have to add to it. It doesn't need anything added to it. It's enough. There's no need for an overcorrection. Oh yeah, grace is fine, but you also have to do this. Now, you and I live differently We live righteously. We get rid of conceit because of grace. Not in addition to grace. Grace is a teacher. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace is enough. It's what Paul trusted in. It's what you and I trust in. It's that mercy that we rely on. This is a trustworthy saying, he tells Titus. And finally, grace is 
empowers holiness. You know, one of the overcorrections about grace and some of the confusion about grace is that grace somehow denies doing good things. That only comes about because of a false assumption that doing good things earns us privilege or access to God. Once you cancel out that thought, that idea, it no longer follows. I mean, whether you deny it or not. Here's what I'm saying. For, for many, many years, centuries even, probably since the time of uh, Martin Luther, 1517, the Reformation, there's been this concern that, that good deeds and the way that we live our lives and, and, and spiritual disciplines are in some way um, a way to influence God for our own good, that we have to win his favor or we have to appeal to his attention or we have to somehow separate ourselves out. And so we get this idea that there are degrees of holiness, that some are more righteous than others. Some are better than others. And for most of us, what we do is we don't put ourselves on a pedestal. We put others on a pedestal. And we shoot ourselves down. You know, I'm just, I'm not that good. I'm not that, I, I don't, I can't attain to that. None of that is necessary. Not a single bit of it. Because it's all about trusting in God's mercy and his grace. And it's about learning to lean into that. Now we no longer have to do good works to get more grace, nor do we have to worry that preaching grace will somehow make people lazy and they'll think, well, they don't have to do anything to be saved. Because it has nothing to do with that sort of interaction. Instead, realizing as to use Paul's language in this letter to Titus, the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. That's what God did in the gospel event, which has now become the gospel message about what God did himself through Jesus Christ to erase sin and guilt, to reverse the condemnation that comes into the world because of sin and guilt, because of atonement, and all the different ways you want to explain that. And God proving it in a very real way. Not just a logical way or a thoughtful way. But proving it through the powerful sign of the resurrection. To show that there is, is, that there is a life beyond this life. And that fact, that reality is a strong indicator to us to reject ungodliness. Those who understand grace, you're not going to have to worry about them returning to sin or being lazy because you don't want anything to do with that when you've experienced God's mercy. Does it all happen at once? No, not necessarily. Maybe in some ways for some people at some times. I'm not going to deny that. But it's a process that we grow in. Because remember, grace is also a teacher. It teaches us how to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It's not just about getting access after we are buried and we go to heaven. It's about right now while we're on the way and the way we function and the way we, we act and, and, and the renewed life that we're living, a very different kind of life. 
So grace is not an impediment to holiness and righteous living. It's actually the fuel that makes it work. Back down in verse 7, 3, 7 in Titus, he says, Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Justified is a $10 word for having something made right. Um, a police officer may have to use deadly force carrying out his or her duty. And then there's going to be an inquiry as to whether the action was justified. You can justify it. It can still be a traumatic thing. But you go a step further when something is sanctified. When something is sanctified, it's not only made right, it's made good. It's made holy. And justification is just the start for you and I. We don't want to just park at justification. So when that street preacher is asking me that question, have you been saved, I'm only thinking you know, in my new Christian life, I'm only thinking, okay, I'm justified, I think. What I've learned since is that's just, the, that's just the first step. You get made right. You get put into the game. It's like signing day for a college athlete. You sign. Now you're a member of the team. Mm-hmm. Now you need to deliver. <laughs> You can sign a lot of top athletes. They're on the team, but are they going to play? See, and here's the thing. You and I, when, when God justified us, we, well, we didn't even sign. He wrote our name in for us, okay? We didn't even go that far. We're that passive in this whole process. But along the way, God is, through his grace, is coaching us and teaching us and enabling us to play on the field in such a way that it brings honor to him. Three things. Grace teaches us, grace is enough, and grace empowers holiness. This is a trustworthy saying. Uh, so don't be afraid of God's grace. Lean on it. Trust in it. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would teach us to experience your grace that's enough. There's so many things that we will allow to disqualify us, so many misunderstandings that can knock us off course. But, Father, the power is not within us. Help us to trust in you for a relationship that draws us up out of the ungodliness and the self-indulgence and the self-righteousness that... Um, that destroys us and destroys others and help us to trust in you for that grace that um, shows us and shows everyone else your power. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, tonight, now what we're going to do is we're going to sing this song. If you need to take communion, that's been prepared. You can go right back out there to the lobby and someone will show you where that's at. So let's stand, let's sing, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.